Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 56, King Philip's War. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, then please consider signing up for membership. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. This is an important moment in the show's history, and is something I've been teasing for about 40 episodes at this point. Way back when we covered Virginia, I said there were two key military events in the 1670s that mark the first real break in the narrative. The first of these that we dealt with was Bacon's Rebellion. But this cannot be taken in isolation. Just as the southern colonies dealt with a potential independence movement, the North was dealing with a crisis of its own, King Philip's War. It may have taken 40 episodes for us to catch the North up with Virginia, but here we are. So, how did all of this begin? Well, pressure between the Indian tribes and the English began as soon as the English started their westward push. The first townships were set up along the coast of Massachusetts Bay in the 1620s, and as more and more people arrived, they worked their way across the region. This initially caused no problems. You'll recall that in the years before the arrival of the Pilgrim Fathers, a devastating plague had struck the region. There were empty sites for the Pilgrims to settle at, but as more and more people arrived, problems began to happen. Before long, the English dominated eastern Massachusetts, going about 25 miles inland, and were pushing into the Connecticut Valley. This was going to cause problems. And, due to the haphazard nature of expansion, with each town acting quite independently, there was no grand plan, no systematic defence. The Connecticut villages in particular were quite isolated, from those on Massachusetts Bay. Communities were not that interested in defence, in constructing stockades or refuges. The frontiersmen neglected military matters completely. This too was going to cause problems. You'll recall that, aside from the odd incident, there was no real trouble between the English and the Native Americans for some time after the English arrival. The Pilgrims had quite friendly relations. Matters began to change in the 1630s, when a war was fought with the Pequods. It did not reflect well on the English. They massacred an Indian village, killing 600. There were also incidents of taking Indians out to sea in boats and then killing them, and taking women and children as slaves. The English seem to have been quite panicky, regarding the Indians as threats. It's ironic that the only reason they could possibly be a threat would be because the English sold them their firearms in the first place. The other main feature of Anglo-Indian relations was attempted conversion. Some Indians were very interested in what the English had to say when they weren't fighting, There was even some effort to educate the Indians, to teach them about laws and democracy. It comes across as quite condescending to modern ears. 
the Native Americans had their own political organisations, even though they might not be as complex as those of Western Europe. They were admittedly not on the same level of civilization, but they were not wild savages. It's now quite important for me to discuss something which has come up on the membership feed quite often, as we've discussed relations between the Aztecs and the Spanish, but we haven't really dealt with here yet. The existence of the Native Americans did not fit with the Western understanding of creation. They understood all civilization in terms of the Bible. There were three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, one for each of the sons of Noah. How did the Native Americans fit into this? Well, they didn't. It was thought that they were of a different creation from something before the fall. They were not quite human. They might do nice things, they might create art, but so could spiders and bees. It didn't make them human. There was thus some confusion over what a Christian Indian was. If they weren't human, they couldn't be considered the same as white Christians, but they were a step above heathens. The term praying Indians was invented to describe them, although it was doubted that they understood or believed in the faith. It was this that would destroy any potential cooperation. While a few good folks had managed to accidentally nurture friendly relations, it was all about to be destroyed. In 1661, Massasoit, the old friend of the pilgrims, died, and he was succeeded by his son, Wamsutta, known as Alexander to the English. This was at a time when the pressure for land was making it harder and harder for the two civilizations to live side by side. Wrongs were committed by both sides, and mistrust became the status quo. Wamsutta began to prepare for war against the English, and attempted to bring the Narragansetts onto his side. The English attempted to sort out the situation, but during this process, Wamsutta fell ill and died. The Indians suspected that he had been poisoned. Relations soured further. In 1662, Wamsutta was replaced as king by his younger brother, Metacomet, sometimes known as Pometacom or Metacom, who adopted the English name Philip, which of course brings us to King Philip's War. I will, for the purposes of this narrative, refer to him as Metacomet. Metacomet could see what was happening to his people. The English would not stop coming. They would take more and more land, and eventually his people would be overrun. They needed to be forced out. He wasn't going to just launch a war he knew he would lose, but it seems that he realised that war was inevitable, and was just waiting for it to happen. And it would. In an early deal, the English greatly manipulated the Indians. They came to terms in talks, and then a document was signed. The Indians assumed that what was written down was what had been agreed, and so made their mark, not realising that the English, whose law valued written contracts, had to change the terms of the agreement. This took advantage of the Indians. It must be said that the English believed 
that all diplomatic and political deals were done this way, and they were ignorant in assuming that the Indians would know this. It doesn't excuse their behaviour, but it does explain it. The English honestly thought they had done nothing wrong. It is not the historian's role to moralise and judge. It's the historian's role to understand. That's really all we can do. Metacomet had other grievances. He was frustrated that the English would not sell weapons to friendly tribes. He took offence that the English would treat the actions of individuals as the actions of tribes, and he was affronted that the English insisted in forcing themselves into legal matters that concerned only natives. They had no jurisdiction there. Their strengthened position over the last 50 years had made them arrogant. This made the English very paranoid. They wouldn't settle the grievances of the Indians, of course, they just became paranoid and assumed that every action taken by Metacomet was in some way a preparation for war. There was a confrontation in 1671. Metacomet admitted to the English that he had been less than noble in his designs, and promised to be friendly. As a show of faith, he turned over his firearms to the English, but it was just that, a show. He promised to send over the west of the weaponry his tribe had, but of course, he never did. Relations grew more tense. In 1671, Plymouth and Rhode Island were getting worried, and by the time 1674 closed, that concern had spread north to Massachusetts. They sent representatives to Metacomet to investigate just what he was doing and to try and negotiate a treaty with him. He ominously responded that he was not going to negotiate with underlings. If they wanted to talk, he would talk with King Charles, and that was it. The English were terrified, but equally were unwilling to make the first strike. If there was a way they could peacefully dominate the Indians, they would try that, but Metacomet had no intention of being peacefully dominated. It is suspected that Metacomet intended to launch his attack in 1676, but in 1675, his hand was forced. An educated Indian who seemed to have knowledge of Metacomet's plans travelled to Plymouth, where he was suddenly murdered. Three Indians on Metacomet's council were arrested and found guilty. The evidence was circumstantial at best. The Wampanoags were furious with the English, once again trampling upon their sovereignty. It was the final straw. Vengeance was demanded. On June 20th, 1675, a raid was made against the English town of Swansea in Massachusetts, and one Indian was wounded in the attempt. On June 24th, an Indian raiding party attacked and killed ten Englishmen. The Shroud of Darkness had fallen, begun King Philip's War had. Massachusetts fell into chaos, and numerous Indian tribes joined in with the raiding, including the largest tribe of the region, the Narragansetts. This conflict is sometimes known as the Great Narragansett War for this reason. Throughout the next six months, Indian attacks ravaged the region. No area of New England was safe. 
It was for this reason, you'll recall, that the United Colonies of New England had been created, to mutually protect the region in case of an Indian attack. Had this infrastructure not been in place, it is very likely that New England would have been completely wiped out. Such was the unprecedented scale of the attack. But the organisation did exist. At first, it was all the English could do to defend each town on a case-by-case basis. It's hard to make long-term plans when you don't know if you might live to see tomorrow. Boston had raised 120 troops, and other settlements had raised forces too, but there was nothing that could be done. On October 19th, Metacomet made an assault on Hatfield with 800 men, but this was rebuffed. He then tried to encourage an attack from the tribes on the Hudson, before he set up winter camp in a swamp in Narragansett land around Rhode Island. This gave the English the opportunity to put together a fighting force, which had been called for in September. In November, a force was finally gathered. New Haven had by this point been absorbed into Connecticut, but the other three colonies contributed to a force around a thousand strong. Massachusetts provided 527 soldiers, Connecticut gave 315, and from Plymouth came 158, and the Commander-in-Chief, Josiah Winslow, the son of our old friend, Edward Winslow. This was in addition to a force of around 150 Allied Indians. They made their way to Rhode Island with the plan to attack the Indian Winter Camp, at which about 3,000 were stationed. The attack, known as the Great Swamp Fight, began on December 19th. The result of the conflict was mixed. The camp was destroyed, but this wasn't particularly important. It was just a camp in a swamp of no strategic importance. It also brought the Narragansetts more firmly into the war. About 70 militia were killed and 150 wounded, while it seems that hundreds of Indians died. Determining exact numbers is difficult. In 1676, the raids continued. Metacomet launched an attack on Lancaster in February, the first of a series of devastating attacks that destroyed many English towns. Providence was burned in March. The war dragged on, but the Indians struggled to develop a strategy. They won many battles, but they were unable to do anything with these victories. Meanwhile, the English, with their superior marksmanship, inflicted heavy casualties. The Mohawks, who were on good terms with the English, helped to stop the rebellion spreading, and Indian tribes were brought into the English army. They helped annex the territory of enemy Indians. A huge blow was dealt to the war effort when Metacomet was killed in August 1676, then it was only really a matter of time before the war was brought to an end. By this date, the Wampanoags, the Narragansetts and the Pequods were completely wiped out, and the English were now in complete control of southern New England. The war dragged on for two more years in the north and east, in what would become New Hampshire and Maine, but by that point, the remaining Indian tribes and the English were both exhausted. 
neither of them was in a position to achieve a decisive victory, and so a peace was signed on February 12th, 1678. The war had been very costly. There were between 30 and 40,000 English in New England by the time of the war. About six to 8,000 of these were men of fighting age. By the end of the war, one in 10 were dead. About half of the 90 or so towns were attacked, and a dozen were destroyed. The cost was £100,000, a tremendous amount for the colony. The Indian losses were devastating. Several thousand died in the war, thousands more died of starvation, and thousands more left the region, either fleeing or in chains. Three tribes were destroyed. It is estimated that the Indian population of southern New England dropped by anywhere between 40 and 80%. The war was important because it demonstrated the benefits of the colonies working together, something we shall see when we advance the narrative into the late 17th century, and something which will reach its conclusion in the 18th. It also changed the nature of New England. No longer was it a border region in the same sense. It had established its dominance over the Indian tribes. Sure, the Iroquois were lurking beyond the Hudson, but that was a matter to be dealt with by New York and New Jersey. The history of New England would become more domestic and political as it advances towards the revolution. This is a defining moment in our narrative. It was a lot harder to bring New England up to the end of the 1670s than it was Virginia. It took Virginia 17 episodes. It took New England 39. This section of the narrative has allowed us to get a much wider understanding of the early American story than the episodes solely on Virginia did giving us a distinctly northern character. I hope you've enjoyed this segment, as it will probably be quite a while until we return here. Next time out, the narrative turns south. I focused on Virginia specifically for the first 17 episodes, and Virginia will be the very heart of the United States for a long period of time, which is why it was deserving of such specific attention but it was by no means the only colony of the South. We need to look to Maryland, and we need to look to Carolina. Yes, we're going back to Dixie. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>